Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 393 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab. Soyuz mission. During 1970 through 1972, a possible new docking mission with Skylab was considered. But this new docking mission would not be just an American Apollo spacecraft. It seems President Nixon was supportive of another area of space exploration. That was a cooperative program with other nations, particularly the Soviet Union. Talks between NASA and the Soviet Academy of Sciences occurred infrequently for some time. Discussing space technology and life sciences, space law, and the safe return of astronauts and cosmonauts who might be forced to land in foreign territory in an emergency. And, of course, several astronauts and cosmonauts had met at international venues over the years. Even though there were reports and statements about a possible joint program participation, there had been no serious discussions about actually flying in space together. By the late summer of 1970, that changed. The idea of cooperative missions with the Soviets was moving forward, mainly due to the efforts of NASA's third administrator, Thomas O. Payne, and the president of the Soviet Academy of Science, Keldish. After a series of letters and meetings between the two sides, it was determined that a possible joint effort in space could be devised by using the current technology of the American Apollo and Russian Soyuz. They immediately ruled out any lunar distance missions because the Soyuz was capable of only Earth orbital flights. You may recall the Earth orbital Soyuz was actually a derivative of the spacecraft that was secretly planned to have taken cosmonauts to the moon. Of course, there were other problems. 
For example, Soyuz and Apollo used different gas atmospheres to sustain their crews, and they also had incompatible docking systems. So any joint missions proposed would require resolution of many basic techniques and operating procedures before anything could leave the planet. Now that the moon was ruled out as a possibility, NASA explored Earth orbital missions and thought of two possible missions using what was proposed as a common docking mechanism for space stations under planning for later in the 1970s. The advanced development staff at NASA headquarters in Washington evaluated the possibility of either Apollo or Soyuz rescuing a disabled vehicle of the opposite type, or a separate mission to test the joint rendezvous and docking capabilities of the two spacecraft using jointly designed equipment that could be applied to later programs. But they realized that a direct rescue profile was not practical. Apollo was much more maneuverable than the Soyuz, and the cramped confines of the Soyuz meant it was impossible to recover all three astronauts from Apollo. The only way that this could be done was by launching the Soviet spacecraft unmanned. On a real rescue mission, if the Apollo crew was disabled in some way, this would not be helpful. On the other hand, independent studies done by Rockwell indicated that Apollo could support five people for a short period of time, and this meant that the American craft could rescue three cosmonauts from Soyuz by launching a two-man Apollo. Remember, Apollo spacecraft were capable of being flown back from the moon by one person if the two lunar explorers became stranded on the surface. So, it became obvious that providing an effective space rescue would be both costly and complex. It could become more effective when and if both nations adopted a reusable shuttle system rather than the single-mission spacecraft in service at the time. However, there were other options available. One of these, in the near term, was a joint docking mission with Skylab. Of course, a number of hurdles would have to be overcome. First, the joint hardware had to be completed in time to meet the lifetime of Skylab, that is, the year 1973. Number two, the Soviets and NASA had to agree on it. Number three, there had to be funds from the current budget to support it. And number four, which was the biggest question, would the U.S. launch anything with a crew on board after Skylab? At the time, the proposed space shuttle was still under study and was far 
from becoming a definite program. The development of larger space stations was not defined, and even a second Skylab was questionable. But an important factor in favor of the idea was that the Soyuz could offer the capability for rescuing a stranded Skylab crew. The near disaster of Apollo 13 was very fresh in the minds of those at NASA, and the idea that Soyuz might be capable of providing assistance to Skylab in the event of trouble in Earth orbit was attractive. Currently, studies into the prolonged use of orbital storage of Apollo's command and service module were being conducted, as well as studies on how quickly a rescue Apollo could be launched to render aid to a Skylab crew in immediate peril. Since both of these were unknown, a Soyuz might come in pretty handy. By late August 1970, after further discussions with Philip Culberson, the chief of the Advanced Mission Planning Group in the Office of Manned Spaceflight in Washington, James Roberts of the Advanced Development Group sent a memo addressing the three main areas of joint discussion, rendezvous, docking, and crew transfer. The memo was sent to the Kennedy, Marshall, and Houston offices and to the Skylab Space Station and Shuttle offices at headquarters. In the memo, Roberts wanted ideas for a joint mission and the technical feasibility of providing an American vehicle to support Soviet missions. The Kennedy Space Center was also asked for an understanding of what would be involved in preparing a Saturn 1B or Saturn V for launch once information had been received that a Soviet manned flight was imminent so as to render a rescue capability should NASA be called upon to do so. The reason it was important to understand how long such an operation would take, how much it would cost in manpower, materials, and money, and especially how long a Saturn could remain launch-ready was its relevance both to the proposed joint program with the Soviets and also in determining the effectiveness of Skylab rescue capability from an Apollo. In early September, one of the first responses came from Skylab Program Director William Snyder. He indicated a joint mission was possible. A lot of joint planning would be required, however. These ranged from on-time launch, rendezvous, and docking, cooperation between the launch and mission control centers, direct contact between both spacecraft, tracking coverage, and a method of actually joining the two spacecraft. Although there was generally an unenthusiastic response to Robert's memo from the Skylab office, 
On September 4, 1970, NASA's administrator, Payne, wrote to the president of the Soviet Academy of Science, Keldish, proposing a Soyuz docking mission with Skylab. While awaiting a reply from the Soviets, the Americans were evaluating three mission scenarios. First, a Soyuz docking with the Skylab, as I just mentioned. The second, an Apollo could dock with a Soyuz. And the third, a future American spacecraft, possibly the space shuttle, could dock with a future Soviet spacecraft, whatever it might be. The real question was, would the Soviets even respond to the letter? let alone support such a mission. But the Soviets did respond on September 23rd, and they were indeed interested, and suggested the first joint talks should begin as soon as October. So NASA headed to Moscow in October 1970. They made presentations to Soviet officials on the American docking systems that had been used on Gemini and Apollo. One of the several systems presented that had not been used in flight was a 1963 ring and cone concept, which was further developed for the Apollo Applications Program, but was not adopted. This evolved into a double interrupted ring and cone which featured 12 fingers or guides on one cone matching the ring of the second cone to mesh together exactly. There were no docking probes or drogues to block transfer hatches, and as each half was exactly the same, it did not matter whether the spacecraft was the active or passive vehicle offering a fail-safe system. This was the basis of what became the Apollo-Soyuz Test Project Androgynous Docking System. Additionally, the meeting reviewed plans for the proposed Joint Skylab mission. One of the delegates on the Soviet side, Kosmonaut Fyoktistov, wanted to talk about the future aspects of Skylab and his ideas of creating a rotating space station rather than dwell on past programs. In any case, no further decision was made on a Soyuz-Skylab mission at this meeting. However, advances were made both on the possibility of some kind of joint mission and towards the development of common docking hardware to achieve that mission. Both sides agreed to work together and to meet again. In America, further studies were completed offering three possible missions in the near term using the hardware that both nations were currently flying. The first Soyuz docking to Skylab to demonstrate the feasibility of such an operation. 
and possibly including a program of joint experiments with an American crew on board the station. Second, for cosmonauts to occupy Skylab after the Apollo crew had departed. And third, Soyuz docking to an Apollo directly to test each craft's rendezvous and docking capability in relation to the other vehicle. At this time, October 1970, of course, Skylab was the only known space station under development, but it was not due to launch until late 1972, although the Soviets had often indicated that they too had a space station under development, they had yet to launch one, although such an event was expected in the near future. This would be Salyut 1. Now, what was really interesting about these proposals was exactly how were they going to be achieved. In addition to the incompatibility of the spacecraft atmospheres and the design of suitable docking hardware, there was also the problem of where the Soyuz would dock on Skylab if the Apollo crew was on board. The only current option would be to use the multi-docking adapter's end port or access port using an Apollo-type docking probe on a Soyuz. The Apollo crew would allow the Soyuz to dock first with the access port before docking the command module to the radio port but this still involved the fitting of an Apollo docking system to a Soyuz and the provision of adequate adjustment of the atmosphere to allow the cosmonauts to enter Skylab. Even more interesting was the idea to allow a Soviet cosmonaut team to dock to an unoccupied American space station during the Cold War. It was technically possible, but operationally very demanding, politically very uncomfortable, and doubtful it would ever be allowed to occur. In June of 1970, the Soviet Soyuz-9 mission ended with cosmonauts Nikolaev and Sebastianov setting a new space endurance record of 17 days and 17 hours, beating the old 14-day record of the United States. At the post-flight press conference, Keldish indicated that the future direction of Soviet cosmonautics was to be the establishment of prolonged orbital stations for scientific and economic purposes. Now, the two Soyuz 9 cosmonauts soon became ambassadors for the Soviet space program and were invited to the United States in October of 1970. On October 21st, during a 10-day visit to the American Space Centers, 
The cosmonauts were briefed on the Skylab program at Marshall. At the time of their visit, Rusty Swigert was planning to perform an underwater Skylab test in the large neutral buoyancy tank. And since the cosmonauts were already there, permission was quickly secured to allow Sebastianov, wearing an Apollo EVA suit, to join Swigert in the tank. The cosmonauts' escorts just happened to be Apollo 11 astronaut Buzz Aldrin, who joined them in the tank, wearing scuba gear. While the other cosmonaut, Nikolaev, decided to observe from the outside. Afterwards, the press called the event the first joint American-Russian training session. This visit inspired Deputy Administrator George Lowe to write to President Nixon's science advisor, E.E. E. Davis, Jr. The letter warned, that in the wake of recent budget cuts, the loss of two lunar missions, and recent Soviet indications of creating a space station, any further budget cuts could seriously threaten Skylab, stating, quote, to forego Skylab would lead the United States without the database for any future manned missions and would surrender to the USSR the option of having the first real space station in orbit. End quote. He also indicated that such a move would leave the option of sharing manned spaceflight and the development of a common docking mechanism for future orbital spacecraft underdeveloped. On April 19, 1971, the Soviet Union made good on their promise and launched the world's first space station, Salyut 1, indicating that the Soyuz 9 record could soon be surpassed. Incidentally, this was covered in episodes 323 through 335. On April 23rd, Soyuz 10 was launched with a three-man crew on a planned 30-day mission to the Salyut. The crew managed to dock to the station, but not firmly. So after only five hours and 30 minutes, they were told to undock from the Salyut and then attempt a second docking. But they experienced difficulty in releasing from the Salyut and it took some time before the cosmonauts managed to free their spacecraft. Luckily, they had not damaged the single docking port on the station, as this would have rendered Salyut unusable. With reduced consumables on board and concern about whether they could undock again, the order was given to not attempt a second docking, but to complete a fly-around inspection and then effect their recovery. 
The April 24 free entry and landing went smoothly, apart from landing just 165 feet from a lake after completing a two-day flight. The inquiry found that the docking equipment on the Soyuz had become damaged during the initial hard docking approach. Once modifications had been implemented, plans were made to still fly two 30-day missions to the station, launching on June 4th and July 18th. However, by the end of the first mission, Salyu would have been in orbit nearly three months, and onboard supplies might not have been enough to support a second 30-day mission. The flight plan was therefore changed, with the first flight reduced to 25 days. On June 6, 1971, Soyuz 11 launched, and the crew spent the next three weeks on board, becoming the world's first space station crew. While Salyut 1 was in orbit, further joint discussions continued between NASA and the Soviets. A Soviet delegation visited NASA Houston between June 21st and June 25th. During these discussions, the Soviets indicated that the idea of just docking an Apollo to a Soyuz with a simple probe and drogue device was not very productive to future operations and would be seen by the world as nothing more than a space stunt. The other options were a Soyuz docking to Skylab or an Apollo docking with Salyut. The Soviets continued to express their interest in some sort of joint mission, incorporating a universal docking mechanism with application for future projects. As Salyut had been placed in orbit before Skylab, the Americans suggested that the proposals should focus initially on an Apollo docking with a Soyuz Salyut configuration, and in a subsequent flight, a Soyuz might attempt a docking with Skylab. As the Soviet delegation returned to Moscow, the Soyuz 11 cosmonauts were ending their research program to prepare for their return to Earth. After 23 days on board the station, they closed down the Salyut, transferred experiment results and film cassettes to their Soyuz, and looked forward to a hero's return. After some difficulty in closing the hatch, they undocked and prepared for re-entry. The final communication from the spacecraft prior to re-entry indicated that all was fine. Unfortunately, it was not, and the cosmonauts died during re-entry. However, the cause of the accident was not immediately made public. On June 30th, George Lowe expressed NASA's regrets over the deaths of the three cosmonauts, but did not anticipate any changes in the Skylab program. However, it caused some concern at NASA that the Soyuz was the same type being used on the joint mission under discussion.
although the system that failed had no relationship to the integrity of the Apollo, there was some concern that perhaps the extended flight had an adverse effect on the performance of the three cosmonauts in their preparation for the return. If this was the case, this could threaten the three long-duration manned missions planned for Skylab. But the subsequent investigation indicated that one of the two valves in the Soyuz respiratory system was in an open position when it should have been closed. As the cosmonauts were not wearing space suits, this led to their deaths as a result of rapid decompression during the descent. The extended visit to the Salyut had not caused their deaths, and although their physical and psychological condition at the end of a long and stressful mission was probably not at its best. There was no reason why the Skylab missions could not proceed as planned. So, discussions for the proposed joint flight continued through the summer of 1971, and there were even plans for a series of post-Apollo and Skylab missions using surplus hardware. Some of this would be utilized for the joint flight being planned for late 1974 or mid-1975. But by September of 1971, the cost for just one joint flight had been calculated, and this led to ideas of future post-Skylab Apollo Earth orbital missions being quietly discontinued. However, talks did continue with the Soviets on the idea of a command module docking to a Salyut. With a Soyuz already docked to a proposed second docking port at the rear of the vehicle. NASA drawings reflected this option, which had not been possible on the first Salyut because it only had one docking port. Interest in the Apollo Salyut docking continued well into 1972 as talk of a Soyuz docking with Skylab quickly went away. At the meetings of officials in Moscow from November 27th to December 6th, in an effort to keep the joint flight simple, discussions regressed to the proposal to simply dock an Apollo directly to a Soyuz. For that to occur, a docking module would be constructed to achieve the physical connection between the two spacecraft and as a location to equalize the atmospheres between the two spacecraft. NASA continued to pursue the possibility of flying an Apollo command module to a Salyut at some time, but by then it was highly unlikely that a Soyuz would visit Skylab. Such a flight was being ruled out as being too complicated for the first Skylab orbiting workstation. 
If there were to be such a mission, it would be with a second Skylab or a different type of station that the U.S. might place in orbit after 1975. However, discussions did continue towards official acceptance of a joint mission by both sides with the U.S. hoping to dock with a Salyut. Until, suddenly, in April 1972, the Soviets indicated that Salyut would not now be part of a joint mission, which would now be a simple docking between an Apollo and a Soyuz. The Soviets said that it was technically and economically impossible to convert the Salyut to have two docking ports. As a side note, unbeknownst to the U.S. at the time, such a development was being evaluated at a Soviet design bureau for a rear docking port instead of a forward one for the Almaz military space stations, commencing with Salyut 2 in 1973. Furthermore, the second-generation space stations, beginning with Salyut 6 in 1977, was to feature two docking ports. Although Soyuz would not dock with Skylab, and now Apollo would not dock with Salyut. For a while, there was one interesting mission remaining. It was the possibility of the Apollo signed to the joint flight with the Soviets to visit Skylab after completing the docking phase with the Soviets. Moving on with Skylab preparation. On April 13, 1971, NASA issued an updated hardware delivery and launch readiness schedule that reflected the timeline of all the Skylab components. It indicated that the SL-1 Skylab launch mission could be done no earlier than April 30, 1973, followed by the SL-2 launch of the first crew 24 hours later on May 1st. The launch of the second crew was planned for July 30th and the third crew for October 28th. Despite some studies into delaying the first manned launch for up to two weeks to confirm that Skylab was, in fact, in a stable orbit before committing a crew launch, a report issued in April of 1972 indicated that it would be wise to lead the launch plan as previously scheduled and to ensure the command module was docked to Skylab as soon as possible to fully activate the station. Then, by January 15, 1973, it was clear that the original launch date would have to slip again due to delays in several items of hardware preparation. And so the launch date of SL-1 slipped 
to the middle of May 1973. The exact date was to be defined after the evaluation of launch and landing constraints on the other two flights to determine whether the recovery date for the last crew, 21st December 1973, could still be maintained as planned or if a slip past the holiday season would be required. On February 14th, Snyder reviewed launch schedule options and reduced the interval between the first crewed flights, that would be SL-2 and SL-3, launches by five days. And between the second and third crewed flights, SL-3 and SL-4, for 10 days. There was concern that moving the launch dates as a result of the slippage from April 30th would affect the launch abort lighting conditions and would create a less than favorable prospect of a nighttime recovery. Additionally, it would shift the circadian rhythm on the third crew. As a result of the reduction of the mission planning cycle, these matters were taken into consideration and the optimum launch dates were chosen to alleviate these concerns and eliminate any nighttime recovery operations. The first launch of the Skylab itself would occur on May 14, 1973, then the first crew on May 15, 1973, the second crew August 8, 1973, and the third crew November 9, 1973. And by the spring of 1973, all was ready to support the Skylab missions. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 393 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab Soyuz Mission. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. If you need to contact me, please use the new email, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Don't use the old one as it has been out of service for several months now. Email is really the best way to uh, get in contact with me because I check it most often. Our next episode should be released by July 28th. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and typing in your email on the form. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 213 are available on the Archive Podcast. Just search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. If you're using Google Podcasts, you have to type in the whole name of the podcast. 
Space Rocket History Archive or the search engine won't find it. Google made some changes. Why? I don't know. My Twitter handle is working again. It is at Space Rocket His, so please, if you would like, follow me on Twitter. I'm up to 151 followers now. Had a few afterthoughts. Of course, I would like to apologize for mispronunciation of words and names. Do you know? Did you know about the Soyuz Skylab docking mission? I'm pretty sure I did not, unless I just forgot about it. Now that does happen sometimes. I'll tell you that I hadn't heard about something, and then something or someone will jog my memory, and I realize I had heard about it after all. I just forgot. I guess that's just part of getting old. Anyway, what wanted to include that possible mission in Skylab's history because it was so interesting. It would have been so cool to see a Soyuz docked to the end of the multi-port adapter and an Apollo docked on the radio port. Now, I happen to have a picture of this, and it will be posted with the episode, and you can see it on the at the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. I wish they could have got it to work out. It would have been so much better than what we got. I guess it all comes down to funding as usual. When they saw the cost for just one simple Apollo-Soyuz flight, that was enough to say, we aren't going to spend any money on that. And what we got, Apollo-Soyuz, did appear as a space stunt. The U.S. didn't launch any more Apollos after that mission, so it was mostly just politically motivated and good publicity. Like the Soviets said, it would be perceived as a space stunt. And if anybody knows how to recognize a space stunt, it is most definitely the Soviets. It was kind of funny the Soviets were working on a second docking port for their space station, but they said they were not, that it was impossible. I guess that was a polite way of saying, we really don't want an Apollo crew snooping around our station. For those interested in the house progress, Believe it or not, we finally received our win- window screens. I'm absolutely shocked. That's all we got. There was nothing else taken off the punch list, which has taken three and a half months with uh, very little progress. However, I did notice two long cracks in the basement cement. So, you know, that basement, we've had a lot of trouble with that cement. Uh, They've had to replace two large sections of it already. I'm not sure what they will do for these cracks. To me, it's obvious the mix was not correct when it was poured. So, that is your... But we're still loving living in the house. It's very much better than a camper. (laughs) 
And that's your house update. Over the past fortnight, we received two donations. I would like to thank Paul G., who pledged on Patreon at the Jiminy level and earned a galaxy emoji. And Peter M. from California, who sent in another donation and moved to the Salute Skylab level. Our total Patreon donors reached 244. Now that, my friends, is a drop of 10, which is very concerning. Our total donors for 2022 have reached 329, with an overall goal of 500 for the year. So if you're enjoying the podcast that's been running nine years without commercial interruption, and you can afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Or if you would like to donate by mail, that is fantastic for me, please use my new permit address, which has been active for about 10 months. If you don't know what that is, please email me and I'll give it to you. And now, here's my favorite person in the world, Mrs. SRH, with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. You know, you are also my favorite person in the world. Now, for the SRH drawing. The winner will have the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet, or the regular magnet, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or a genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected James Stein. James Stein, if you would email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 329 of you who have contributed thus far in 2022. My sources for this episode were NASA, Skylab America's Space Station by David Shaler, Skylab Owner's Workshop Manual by David Baker, Homesteading Space, the Skylab Story by David Hitt, the Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I will try to have episode 394 posted by July 28th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.